This week, we are talking about leadership, imposter syndrome, and humor with Tom Langford on the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna Delaney, editor at TICE, and this week I chat with Tom Langford, founder of TL2 Security Limited and former CISO at Publicis Group. Tom is a well-known figure in the security world, prolific public speaker, and an active and engaging social media user. So to hear that he describes himself as naturally shy came as a bit of a surprise. I really enjoyed chatting with Tom, who speaks candidly about wrestling with imposter syndrome, using humour to his advantage, and how public speaking has helped his confidence grow over the years. Here's the interview. And you've held various leadership positions. You seem so relaxed, confident, um, humorous on social media, so quite at ease in that, in that role as a security uh, leader. Was it always this way? And, and what are the, the challenges that come up for you as a leader? I think when I first started in the industry, which actually was only 2008, early 2008, uh, I was learning a huge amount. And not being a, a naturally, or being a naturally shy person, uh, although various for various reasons, I you know I often come across as quite gregarious, etc. But being a naturally shy person, I was very focused on trying to learn the basics and things like that. So I actually went and got a, a CISM as soon as possible, and then a CGEIT, CGIT, I think they call mm-hmm. it, is our name. Um, and then ultimately the CIS, but <clears throat> I think um, I'd always been fairly, I went to a, my first big information security conference, I think it was in 2010, November 2010, in InfoSec in Europe, in London, and I came away think realising that actually I knew when I went to the talks, I could have done 80% of what they were talking about. There was, they were talking about the basics, they were talking about things that I'd already thought about, etc., and it was at that conference that I met a bunch of people who were sort of so social media influencers, you could say. Um, and it was from that point that I realised I, I actually had a message or I, I could say something. And I did my first uh, full-length talk, as it were, about three or four months later. And then thought, well, that's it. I haven't got any more ideas now. You know, I'm, I'm out of things to say. You know, that, that uh, t- public speaking career was quite short and, you know... <laughs> shorter than I expected. And then the next idea came, the next idea, the next idea. And what I found was that the more talks I did, the more opinions I had, because I had to stand up and defend those opinions, or at least present those opinions in front of rooms full of people far more intelligent than me, but who were interested in hearing what my opinions were, and would challenge me either, you know, there at the the event or afterwards online, etc. So for me, being able to, um, being someone who can talk about many things is, is a result of actually sort of synthesizing everything I've seen and putting it across in a talk or putting it across in a blog or putting it across in a meeting or something like that. Um, and therefore allowing me to, to actually give what I hope is ostensibly, you know, valuable uh, insight and, and um, conversation. Some people might doubt that they're ready to go on stage and they don't have any opinions but actually is it is it the talks that have helped you yes. develop? Yeah, a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so I mean I think you know the leadership side of things um, you know I uh, if I go back many many years 
I, I went to a, a military school in Dover for seven years, and that you know they teach you a lot of they put you in leadership positions, um, you know, be that uh, you know in the cadet force, and you're you're taking people through, you know, walking them through your woods, expecting to be ambushed at any moment, and all that sort of stuff, and what you're going to do and things. I mean, it, it it sounds a bit sort of contrived, but when you're put into a position at a, at a fairly young age of being responsible for the, the livelihoods and well-being of people, you tend to you know, stand up and take on that leadership position. Now, that's not always been something that I've been especially comfortable with, but I can do it. And I think you become more and more comfortable with it as you do it more and more. So in business, um, you know, I think my, I took on my first real sort of managerial position not that long after leaving university. Uh, I mean, at university, I used to teach uh, Taekwondo, for instance. Really? So, um, yeah, so it was, I, I became a, a, an accredited instructor, and then uh, injury debilitated my, my future career as a whatever. Um, but, um, you know, so standing up in front of a group of students and trying to, you know, hope, for, hope that you're going to teach them something that they don't know, um, puts you in a similar kind of position. So I think through my life, I've always been sort of either putting myself into or being put into positions where uh, leadership is required, lowercase l leadership. Um, and then when it came to, you know, the last 10, 11 years, it's all kind of come together. And it's funny, you know, without wishing to segue too much, it's funny how I never really had a career until 2008 when I found information security. And that's when I realised what I wanted to do. Uh, which which wasn't that long ago, you know. So, um, and it was it was that that it all came together: the leadership, the the the, the passion, the the, the forming of opinions, the trying to sort of work out what my role is in you know in society, in business, in industry, etc. It's been absolutely, it's all sort of come together in that last ten years. I find it interesting how you you've been at military school because I I think what comes up in in the way you talk about leadership, often you don't take a, a military stance. You, you find that not your style. So you've taken an, uh, an intentional step away from yeah. that type of management. I think I realised quite early on, I was, I was doing um, what was called a, a, a pre-RCB, which is a, the regular commissions board for going into Sandhurst to become an officer. And I was offered a, a, a bursary from the Brigade of Gurkhas to go to university, and then I would give them five years of my life to be an officer. In the Brigade of Gurkhas, etc., and on this pre-RCB, we it was day two. We turned up for a task, and we were about ten minutes early, eight o'clock in the morning, or whatever. And instead of just sitting down or having a cup of tea, we had to run backwards and forwards between a tree to fill up the ten minutes. That was probably one of the seminal moments where I thought, "I oh, really, this is ridiculous. What I'm running backwards and forwards just to fill time, to what purpose?" And I think that's when I knew. The military mindset was not for me. I can take on that mindset. I can, I can see it, and I can, I can appreciate it, and I can, I can bring that kind of rigor when it's needed. But that sort of top-down military, you know, doctrine side of things is not me at all. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I kind of think I have the best of both worlds in that sense. You know, I have the flexibility to, to, well, to work in the advertising and creative industry in security, which is a challenge, I can say, I can absolutely say, 
but also know when real rigour and that kind of rigour is required. And have there any, ever been moments of doubt in, in those in leadership positions? Oh, always. Imposter syndrome? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think it's very common. And I think, like I said, you know, being a naturally shy person, although whenever I tell that to people, they never believe it. But yes, of course, absolutely. And, it, it, you know, and it's, it's um, as I understand, well, not as I understand, you only have to read, you know, look at Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever on anything in Infosec, and there's lots of people suffering from imposter syndrome. But it's also, you know, across the um, you know, across everything. Uh, I, I read a story about Neil Gaiman, the, the author, and he was at a, some sci-fi event and he felt a little bit, you know, on the outside of it, didn't really feel he had much to contribute, etc. And he moved to the back of the room and uh, made friends with someone there, an older gentleman, who was also called Neil, you know, and they, they were chatting to each other about how they shared a name and, you know, how they felt they didn't have much, you know, to contribute, etc. Uh, imposter syndrome, and it turns out this other guy was Neil Armstrong. Now, you know, there's somebody who doesn't deserve to have imposter syndrome is Neil Armstrong. I mean, geez, I, 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 well, it, the name speaks for, for, for itself, you know. So I think it affects everybody at, at any point in their life, you know. Um, uh, and if it doesn't, then you're probably on the sort of sociopathic range of, of well, things. How have you, how have you not let it swallow you whole? Absolutely, and I think you. I think one of the things I do is I I play a character sometimes, and certainly in the in the early days of um, uh, of my public speaking, I would act like a public speaker while I was on stage. So it wasn't me going up there. It was like a protective kind of shell, or whatever. But you know, I I would pretend to be a really good public speaker. And I'd be dying inside as I was trying to sort of interact with people, but actually it worked. And then more and more the act becomes, the act or, or the process of acting just disappears and it just becomes you, it becomes more natural at it. And I think that's part of it. The, 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 the way to deal with imposter syndrome is to, to be blunt, get on with it. And it's really difficult, but it's, it's the most effective way of getting rid of it. And recognising when it is imposter syndrome. I think is most important, you know, um, because, you know, I, I know when I just started up the company and, and um, just a few months ago, and one of the very first contracts I got was from someone I know and trust and respect, um, and I see him as, you know, a leader in his, his field as a CISO, and he asked, he, he, asked me for 12 days of my time over the next year to help advise him on security strategy. And I'm like, really? <laughs> what do you need my help for? But actually, as a sounding board and those first sort of couple of days on site with him, etc., we got through a huge amount of stuff. And, and, you know, one of his phrases at one point was, well, this is worth the price of, uh, you know, your, your FIFA today by itself. And I didn't actually do anything, did I? I just suggested we do this, this and this. But it was something that was inconceivable to him and huge amounts of value to him. That's how you get over imposter syndrome, is actually remembering moments like that, when people really, truly value what it is that you bring to the table. So it's like being a good friend to yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, 
Well, it's being kind to yourself, I think, is a phrase that's often used, you know, certainly when you when you're addressing sort of mental health issues or wellness issues and things like that. It's it's being nice to yourself, being being good to yourself and actually, you know, okay, you've had a bad day. Doesn't matter. Don't dwell on it. Just get on and do it the next day and so on and so on, you know. Um, but yes, I think that I think that sum that sums it up and reminding yourself that actually you're doing this at this level and in this way because of everything you have done. Um, and also, you know, go and chat to somebody, you know, go and chat to a friend or, you know, uh, I, the first few proposals I wrote, I shared them with, you know, close colleagues of mine, people, again, whose opinions I trust and respect. And, you know, I think, I think the first, you know, the first review, they gave me like a, a B minus and say, you might want to change this, this and this. But that honesty and tr uh, came back allowed me to produce a better document. But it was my document. Yeah, they helped, but it, it was me in there that was, that was doing it. You know, and, and at the end of it, when they said, yeah, this is a fantastic document, proposal, structure, whatever, um, you know, and I said, thank you. It was like, well, no, this is your work. You know, it's not us. We just said, what was wrong with it? You know, <laughs> and that's the thing. You forget that actually a huge amount of what you do is you not just everybody else. Yes, you're taking lots of input from everybody else, but you're the one who's presenting it. So you're presenting on stage, um, you've been a teacher, you've been, you've been all these roles, but so you're obviously gifted in delivering messages. Um, what's the best way, what's the art of communicating to, to employees in an organisation to, to deliver those key messages? Keep it simple. Keeping it simple. Um, I, I learned the hard way about keeping it simple. So many, many years ago, I, I was tasked with finding out how much personally identifiable information there was in the company. And I pulled together a little team and we, we, we made this most amazing spreadsheet that asked all the right questions. And depending on what you answer to one question, it would then change subsequent questions. And it was marvellous, absolutely amazing. We sent it out and we got like, 1% return and we failed, we missed the deadline, everything went wrong. And the key feedback we got was, I'm not interested in 100% accuracy, I'm interested in knowing how much we have. And so we changed it from 150 questions to 15 questions tops, much simpler email, much simpler communication, much simpler, we got you know 80, 90% return we had an idea of how many million records we had. So yes, if we, you know, that simplicity in communication, that simplicity in the ask, that simplicity in the message, and also the simplicity in expectation of what you're going to get back is so important because um, although if we got 100% response on that first spreadsheet, we would have known to the, the finite number, you know, that last digit, how many records we had, but it was never going to happen, you know. So it was better that we we got eighty percent of the answer than one percent of the answer, even though that eighty percent may have a you know a, a tolerance of five to ten percent either way. But we actually had an idea, an order of magnitude, and I think that's that's the key thing is just simplicity every time, and it's really difficult to write a simple message. 
That's the key thing to, to, to remember. It's not simple to do simple things, you know. So what's the key to writing a simple message? Going back over and over and over again, removing redundancy, removing, you know, is that relevant? Do I need that? Do I need this piece of information? What am I really trying to say? What am I trying to ask? So it's a bit like when um, somebody comes to you and asks you to, I don't know, asks you to, for authorization to use a particular software or, or whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. The first question should be not, um, you know, when do you need this by? It should be, what is it you're trying to do? Come back to the basics. Um, and I think one of the challenges we very often face in this industry is we try and overcomplicate and we try and layer and layer and layer on top of it to, to either justify our existence or to, to um, you know, maintain our, our kingdoms or whatever. But actually, let's just strip it down. What are we trying to achieve here? Um, and what, are, what, what on balance is, is the important message or the important thing we're trying to do. We don't want to, if we just want to stop a certain kind of behaviour, we often will throw so many different messages and um, communications and training and da da, da 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 when actually maybe we just need to make a change in the way an email is sent or the way that an email is received and what a person can do with that, like a, you know, centre phishing, something like that. A simple behavioural change will actually address much more than layer upon layer of, of activity and action and, and things like that. So, but it's, 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 it takes a lot of refinement to work down. It takes time and effort. Well, you've mentioned the need to generate a visceral response mm. from people. Tell me more about that. It's it's like anything. Humor. I you know I I I, I always like humor. I always like to you know chuck in a joke in, in there. In fact, it's one of my when I was interviewing for people for roles, I always tell a joke and see if they laugh and see what happens. It tells me a little bit about them. Yeah. And how they laugh and if they get the joke or not. <laughs> Sorry, you haven't got the job. You didn't laugh at my jokes. Um, or if it's a terrible joke and they didn't laugh, then I'll know that they're, they're not being polite. You know. But but it's it's um, but that visceral response. What that is about is creating a chemical change in the body. So I think when you create a chemical change in, in the body, in the brain, etc., you're creating new pathways, you're creating an experience. It's a bit like um, it's a bit like why supermarkets pump the smell of bread into um, you know into their bread aisles. Because they're trying to generate that chemical response of of hunger uh, and of you know that that fresh smell of food, for want of a better term, into into your brain. So you buy the bread. Um, it's not always a natural smell. It's it's produced and it's sent through, but it creates the same response. And I think that the similar thing with with any kind of messaging or anything that we're trying to do. If we if we make people laugh at something, then they're going to remember it. They're going to they're going to remember laughing. And they're going to remember what they laughed at, and then they're going to remember what it was that made them laugh about it in the first place, which might well be the message you want to do. And laughter is also something that you can repeat. So when you watch a when you watch a funny film, 
for the tenth time, if it's genuinely funny, you will laugh every time. When you watch a scary film for the tenth time, it becomes less scary every time. The jump scares don't work, the, you know, the tension doesn't work, you know what's going to happen, etc. Um, it's not yeah. as effective. And that's where this whole sort of fear, uncertainty and doubt thing fails, works brilliantly the first time and okay the next time and you get diminishing returns. With humour, I feel you get a much a significantly longer period of return uh, on 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 what it is that you're trying to put across. It's amazing because security isn't necessarily the the most humorous topic. No, no, just because it's not funny doesn't <laughs> no. mean it can't be fun. I think is is a point. You can you can apply that to so many other things as well. I mean, you know, uh, John Cleese was known for doing those. Um, uh, those sort of 80s uh, training videos for business. Um, he founded a company on it, I think, and uh, you know they were. That was in the days of VHS and things like that, and, um, and and they were groundbreaking at the time. And companies were buying them hand over fist because, actually, you know the, those awful 80s training videos where people would talk in a stilted manner and walk from left to right and looking at the camera and all that sort of thing. And he took that and found the funny part side of it, but still got the same message across. And people would watch them even though they didn't need training in that particular thing because they were enjoyable. Um, and that, that, I think, is where the power of humour is. Yes, I think we spoke about the airline videos and... Yes. Yeah, the, the rules, the instructions. That's made right. Made by actors. Yeah, are yeah. Much more engaging. I think Air, Air New Zealand were the first probably well, the first sort of known ones to, to do it, and they, and they keep doing them as well. Um, I know British Airways do them, you know, with um, lots of lovies at the moment and things like that, but, um, you know, but they're still pretty watchable. I mean, I have to say, less so now, I mean, I've watched them an awful lot, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, but, but nonetheless, it makes a topic far more palatable and memorable. And finally, Tom, what's, what's security for you? What's driving you on continuing on this quest? I don't know. It's, it's interesting. It, it just feels like... It just feels like there's so much to do as regards you know, awareness and as regards actually the, the, the way we lead our lives and change our lives. It's almost like we need to speed up the evolution of the species in the way we're doing things. So the technology is driving things so fast and that we're, we're, we're gaining access to so much more data and in losing control of that data so much, so much more regularly and, and quickly, etc. And we as, as human beings are not keeping up. And I think it's, it's, it, it's just the fact that there is so much we can do to address that. So much we can we can sort of so much we can expand upon when it comes to teaching and adapting and um, overcoming all of these issues that are coming up to us every day about lost credit cards, lost this, you know, stolen that, and um, you know, cybercrime and all that sort of stuff, and yet. We can do so much as individuals to change it. I, 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 I liken it to a, like a herd immunity. 
the more we do at the sort of at the very basic ground floor level and work up the harder and harder and harder it becomes for you know for for bad things to happen you know either on purpose or you know either maliciously or or, or unintentionally because the safety net is there that crowdsourcing of of security behavior is there and we and we shouldn't even know that we're doing it in the same way that we don't we we automatically lock the car door we automatically close the windows and lock the door and we leave the house and things like that because that's just the way we do things not because it's security but you know i've locked it and closed it and it's it's just happened you know um and i think and i think that's it, it, it's I think it's so important that we we get that, and I think another part of it, interestingly, and this is you know, this is where the ego comes in. There's also an element of the the protector. Do you know what I mean? There's that element of, you know, we're here to provide a service and to help people. Um, you know, we have we have um, to misquote Liam Neeson. We have a certain set of skills learned over you know a certain a long period of time. You know that we can actually bring to bear and help people. Uh, protect themselves against what's out there. So it's kind of a, a calling. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, th I think it's funny she said that, but I know a lot of people who thought that, who as soon as they went, once they got into security, it's like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, and I'm sure many people that, maybe actors think that, maybe accountants think that. Um, but, you know, it's certainly I hear it an awful lot in this industry. Well, thank you so much, Tom. And I, I look forward to hearing the developments, seeing the developments with TL2 Security? Yes, that's right, tl2security.com. .com. Mm, absolutely, <laughs> for all your VCSO needs. <laughs> Great, thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Tom. I hope you enjoyed all those gems of wisdom. That's all for this week. Please do get in touch with us with any comments or questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can also subscribe and rate our shows. For now, it's bye from us. Join us next time for more Cyber Conversations. <laughs> <laughs>